This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Creeds, Part 9, and we'll be taking a look at the Council of Chalcedon. In 431, the Council of Ephesus dismissed Nestorius's explanation of the dual nature of Christ in favor of Cyril's. But that council was swayed more by circumstance and politics than by sound theology. While Nestorius's Christology was misrepresented by his critics to be proposing not just two natures of Jesus, but two persons, Cyril's Christology put such a heavy emphasis on Jesus' deity that his Christology leaned towards monophysitism, that is, casting Jesus as having just a single nature. Now, to be clear, Cyril did not advocate monophysitism. He stayed orthodox, technically, by admitting that Jesus was also human. But he said that Jesus' deity overwhelmed his humanity so that his humanity was really much like a drop of ink in the ocean of his deity. The Council of Ephesus didn't really provide a solid understanding on the nature of Christ. This was something that the church had wrestled with for 400 years. Church historian Justo Gonzalez says, quote, Both sides were agreed the divine was immutable and eternal. The question then was, how can the immutable eternal God be joined to a mutable historical man? Unquote. With Nestorius excommunicated and exiled, and Cyril's Christology creating confusion, well, the scene was ripe for the emergence of even more confusion. That came with the work of Eutychus, head of a monastery on the border of Constantinople. Though under Bishop Nestorius's oversight, Eutychus disagreed sharply with him. He developed a view of the natures of Jesus that seemed a ready explanation that would bring both sides together. Eutychus emphasized the union of the two natures of Christ, a union so thorough that it fused them into a new third nature that was a hybrid of human and divine. This then is true monophysitism, that is with a capital M. Eutychus agreed with Cyril that Christ was only one person, but unlike Cyril, he said that there was also only one nature in Christ. The fourth ecumenical church council at Chalcedon in 451 was called to deal with the Eutychian challenge. But before we get to that council, we need to talk a bit about an unfortunate event that happened a couple of years before in 449, back in Ephesus, the scene of the last church council in 431. The 70-year-old Eutychus led a monastery of some 300 monks just outside the walls of Constantinople for 30 years. But when he began teaching that the two natures of Jesus as God and man were fused into a single new third nature, Constantinople's patriarch Flavian convened a council deposing Eutychus for heresy and excommunicated both him and those monks who supported him. Joining Flavian in this censure was Domnus, the patriarch of Antioch, Alexandria's age-old theological and political nemesis. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? Sure enough, Dioscoros, the patriarch of Alexandria, cast all of this as an attempt on the part of the two bishops for an attempt to restore Nestorianism. So Dioscorus threw in his enthusiastic support for Eutychus and convinced the emperor Theodosius II to call a new council at Ephesus in 449 to deal with the matter. 
Though Pope Leo I's predecessors had tended to side with Alexandria on previous matters, Pope Leo wrote to Flavian, reinforcing the dual nature view in a weighty theological work that's now known as the Tome of Leo. The Pope also sent legates to the council, one of which would later become Pope himself. The emperor authorized the council to deal with the issue of whether or not Patriarch Flavian had justly deposed and excommunicated Eutychus for heresy. But Flavian and six assisting bishops were not allowed to participate at the Council of Ephesus. They were present, but they weren't allowed to vote. Further stacking the council against Flavian was that the emperor made Flavian's opponent Dioscoros the president of the council. The papal legate was expelled from the proceedings at some point, and it was clear that of the 198 bishops in attendance, most leaned toward Dioscoros. In the first session, after a message from Theodosius II was read, laying down the council's objectives, the remaining papal legates moved to read Pope Leo's letter to Flavian as part of the official proceedings. But Dioscoros refused them, stating that matters of dogma were not a matter for inquiry, since they'd already been resolved at the previous Council of Ephesus in 431. The issue for them to decide was whether Flavian had acted properly in deposing and excommunicating Eutychus. Eutychus was then introduced. He declared that he held to the Nicene Creed. He claimed to have been condemned by Flavian on a technicality and a misunderstanding and asked the council to exonerate and reinstate him. The bishop that was supposed to present the evidence against Eutychus wasn't even allowed to speak. At this point, the bulk of the bishops agreed that the record of the council condemning Eutychus ought to be read so that they could get a better understanding of what evidence they'd used. When the record was read, some claimed that it was inaccurate. Flavian's action was cast as a personal vendetta against an innocent man. And when Flavian tried to speak, he was shouted down. But even more than that, one report has Dioscorus and his supporters physically attacking him and his supporting bishops. Now, the account is confused, so we're not sure if it was the bishops who went to brawling or some of the imperial troops standing guard over the proceedings or both. The upshot is blows were given Flavian's party. When the final vote came in, he was deposed and excommunicated and died of his wounds a few days later into his exile. Eutychus and his brother monks were reinstated, and the council went on to depose several more bishops who had opposed Dioscoros. A deacon named Anatolius, who was loyal to the Alexandrian bishop, was now placed in charge of the church in Constantinople. When Pope Leo received a report of this council from his legates, he condemned it, calling it the Lactrocinium, that is the robber council, and refused to recognize Anatolius as bishop of Constantinople. Emperor Theodosius ignored Leo's refusal, but all that changed when not long after he was killed in an accident and his sister Pulcheria came back to the eastern throne. She married the general Marcion, and together they cleared the teachings of Dioscorus and Eutychus from the church. Patriarch Anatolius knew who buttered his bread, so he also quickly condemned Eutychus's monophysitism. Pulcheria and Marcion knew that the second council at Ephesus was a bad deal and that another genuine ecumenical council was called for to deal with the issue of Christ's nature once and for all. It was called in the city of Chalcedon in 451, directly across from Constantinople. 
The council began on the 8th of October with some 500 bishops, the largest council so far. Pope Leo sent a group of legates along with his tome, which had been ignored a couple of years before. The council opened by reading over the Nicene Creed, along with the letter from Cyril to Nestorius and the tome of Leo. The bishops agreed that all this was enough to resolve the issue before them. That is, articulating an orthodox position on the dual nature of Christ in one person. Emperor Marcion, most likely at the insistence of Pulcheria, directed the council to develop a new creed that would not only unite the Antiochians with their emphasis on Jesus' humanity, with the Alexandrians' emphasis of his deity, but that would adequately express a Christology that both the East and the West could agree on. A committee was appointed to develop a draft for discussion. The first draft pleased most of the bishops, all except for the papal representatives, they felt that the language was too close to Eutychian monophysitism. They moved to replace the draft's wording with that of Leo's tome, saying that there were two natures united without change and without division and without confusion in Christ. This change pleased all and was recognized as better terminology than originally proposed. The council made clear that what they'd produced wasn't really a new creed, but an interpretation and elaboration of the work of the previous councils and their work in refining the Nicene Creed. And so it reads, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance, and here they use that technical Greek word homoousius, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, and of course here they use that disputed phrase Theotokos, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, and there they use the phrase hypostasis, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the Creed of the Fathers has handed down to us. The Council maintained a clear distinction between the concept of a person and a nature in the Creed. Jesus was said to have both a divine and human nature while still being only one person. He had everything he needed to be divine and everything he needed to be human. The second person of the Trinity didn't assume human person. That would be the error of adoptionism. He took on a human nature. The council also made an important technical distinction. The human nature of Christ did not exist as a person without the divine person of the Logos to assume it. This is called the anhypostasia-anhypostasia distinction and maybe simplified to this. 
Because of the power intrinsic to himself as God, the Son could become man. But because of the limitations to himself as a mere man, Jesus could never become God. His divinity precedes his humanity. But because of the incarnation, he remains human now in his glorified state. We owe much in the way that we speak of Jesus Christ today to the Council of Chalcedon. And as clear as its Christology is, the more you ponder the dual nature of Christ in his one person, the more the mystery of the incarnation opens before you. We realize that the Chalcedonian Creed doesn't so much explain or describe the natures of Christ as it does provide a set of rules for how to talk about him. It's more like the rules of grammar than actual literature. It sets the boundaries and the borders to work within, but it leaves us to fill out what lies between them. As we will see, Chalcedon didn't answer all the questions that needed to be settled. A large part of the Eastern Church concluded that the Chalcedonian Creed was too Nestorian and betrayed the simple idea of a single person that Cyril had fought for at Ephesus. Then, in Western churches, the question arose of how many wills Christ had, one or two. But all that was addressed with less drama because of the work done at Chalcedon. In the 16th century, the Reformers accepted Chalcedon as authoritative, its language incorporated into their own creeds and formulations. Then in the 20th century, when liberalism challenged Christ's deity, fundamentalists like B.B. Warfield appealed to Chalcedon as a faithful expression of what the scriptures said about the Son of God. While all that was the main body of work that was done at the Council of Chalcedon, as with the other councils, a number of other decisions were rendered to tighten up church business. These rulings are called canons, and there are 30 of them for Chalcedon. For the most part, they're technical, housekeeping kind of things that have to do with the behavior of clergy. But Canon 28 of Chalcedon was to have far-reaching and monumental import. It reads this. The Bishop of New Rome, by which of course they meant Constantinople, shall enjoy the same honor as the Bishop of Old Rome on account of the removal of the empire. For this reason, the Metropolitans of Pontus, of Asia and of Thrace, as well as the barbarian bishops, shall be ordained by the Bishop of Constantinople. By the time this canon was hammered out, the papal legates had gone home, and they weren't present when this was passed and so protested afterwards. It was, of course, rejected by Pope Leo and will become a major point of contention in later discussions between the Eastern and Western churches. (laughs) 